This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Yana Byers, your host, and I'm here today with historian Catherine Harvey to talk about her new book, The Fires of Lust, Sex in the Middle Ages, out 2021 with Reaction Books. Hello, Catherine, and welcome to the podcast. Hello. How are you today? You're in London, yeah? I am, yeah. Yeah, how are things going over there? Yeah, it's a great old day, but um, not too bad. Well, it's Northern Europe. That's how we live. Uh, a little bit, little bit gray all day. Um, brilliant. So thank you so much for joining me. Um, before we talk about this book specifically, I'd like to talk about you. And you are a very well-published historian, someone who's managed to take what's rather arcane and make it relevant and interesting for the modern public. So you've published in History Today in the BBC History Magazine, but also in Aeon and The Atlantic. I think it's a great choice but it's not a traditional one. And I'm curious about what moved you to work on material for a broader audience, like to work as a public intellectual. Yeah, I mean, I guess it sort of happened by accident in that I, you know, I started off as somebody who did sort of very old fashioned ecclesiastical history. I wrote a PhD on Episcopal appointments in the 13th century. Um, and that was published as a very sort of traditional academic book. And then I started to dabble in this more medical history type stuff. I was doing a project on bishops' bodies in the Middle Ages. Um, and that started to get me interested in, um, I suppose, history that is more interesting to people, if you like. If you try to talk to people about medieval Episcopal elections, they tend to go to sleep. Um, whereas if you start talking to them about medicine and, and people, people's lives, it, it's more interesting, isn't it, to most people? Um well, I suppose when it really sort of started to yeah move towards that sort of area was I wrote a piece for Eon on um, medieval sexual health and really out of that grew the book and a lot of the other stuff I've done. But I suppose I mean I suppose it's always been important to me that um, you know that the work I do should go beyond a book that goes in an academic library and you know two people read. But um, yeah. yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, and this book is of. Uh, is that book it's of it has great appeal to non-specialists as well it's particularly it's smart but you don't have to be a medievalist and a medievalist medievalist to enjoy and read and really understand it yeah I hope not no that was the aim and it's yeah it's got some very nice reviews that people seem to, seem to, people seem to think it's quite readable so I'm pleased to tell that wonderful yeah it's um it's it's really readable and I mean there's a place for those books for books that only that appeal to four people, and and I'm glad that that continues to be done. But it's not a lot of fun. Uh, this is more fun. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, st- I'm still I'm writing another one of those as well on this Bishop's Body project. But um, yeah, no, it's good to do the wider stuff too. Yeah, right. 
Okay, so let's jump in with your book. Let's. Uh, your first chapter is called Guiding Principles, and it talks about the church's conception of sex. And that's a big topic, obviously, but can you distill that down for our listeners? What does the medieval church think of sex? Yeah, so I suppose probably the thing about it is it's more complicated than maybe people think, because I think we've probably very much got this idea that the, sex, the church just didn't approve of sex at all in the Middle Ages. And I mean, there is an element of that because they were very hung up on the idea of sort of Adam and Eve and original sin, and that that was sort of all where, where everything had started to go wrong. Um, and they did um, sort of idealise virginity as the ideal state. And they did think of lots of different forms of sex as sin. And, you know, it was difficult to have sex without committing some sort of sin in the Middle Ages. Um but on the other hand, I think they were more broad-minded than people think because they did, certainly by the lately Middle Ages, when I'm writing about, they very much come to the idea that, well, actually, virginity was all well and good, but most people couldn't stick to it. And you were better to get married and to have sex with your spouse and to have children, which, of course, you need to perpetuate the Christian faith with nothing else from the church's point of view. Um and so they're quite keen on this idea of the marital debt and the idea that, you know, within a marriage, you've got a sort of a religious duty to have sex with your spouse. And there are quite limited reasons why you can say no. Um, they were also more more forgiving, I think, of sexual sinners than maybe we think, because although there are lots of ways to commit sexual sins, generally the line is that, you know, if you're gen if you confess and you're, you genuinely repent, then that can be forgiven. Um and one of their favourite saints in the late Middle Ages was Mary Magdalene, who, of course, is the repentant prostitute who then turned to Christ um, and I think offers hope to a lot of people in the Middle Ages. So, yeah, it was probably more nuanced than we tend to think. Yeah. So, um, I mean, even something like premar- premarital sex, yay or nay, it's considerably more complex than that as well. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of it's definitely frowned upon, but I think definitely the evidence we have shows that people did have sex before they got married. But probably, if you know, if you had sex with your fiance, you got married before you were pregnant and before you were physically pregnant. Probably that was quite common. So I think the early period we actually have data for, and that is the sort of 16th century once parish records start in England. Rates of bridal pregnancy are quite high. It's something like 20 percent, I think, in the early 16th century. So it's definitely not. Um, unheard of. I mean, yeah, in theory, you can end up in the church courts for fornication. Um, But it's, yeah, it's relatively rare. And the punishments are relatively mild in most cases. Yeah, absolutely. In that first chapter, you also cover medieval medical theories, which I think the average human on this earth is less likely to understand or have any knowledge of than they are about medieval religious practice on premarital sex or on sex in general and sexuality. So once again, huge topic, but what essentially was the educated medical position on like sexuality? Yeah, so I mean, basically it comes back to like most things in medieval medicine to the, the humours, the idea that the, you know, the, 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 the body is a sort of, it's a question of balancing the, the, these fluids to um, maintain health, or, or if you get them out of balance, then, then you'll become ill. And so they very much see sex in terms of part of a healthy lifestyle in moderation. Um, if you have sex too much, um, then you'll sort of you'll dry out your body. That can cause all sorts of problems. There are horror stories about people who die from having too much sex. Um, there's a great one in the book about a monk who he dies after I, th- I think it's he's supposed to have they call it imagine a beautiful woman sixty times before breakfast, um, which is quite an achievement I think. Um, 
And um, yeah, but he dies, and they do a post mortem, and his eyes and his brain have all dried up, and it's it's attributed to yeah, too much sexual activity. On the other hand, celibacy is bad for you because. Um, you're not expelling the seed that you're supposed to, and so it will sort of build, build up in your body, um, and that will cause all sorts of problems. And again, you can you can you can die from it. There are horror stories about um, clerics who were supposed to have died of celibacy. Um, soldiers were particularly prone. Um, so yeah, that, that, that's also because it's very much yeah in moderation. Probably they're more worried in terms of sexual health about that idea of balance than they are about BD. Um, Although there there is stuff about sort of leprosy being sexually transmitted, and concerns about what you can catch off a prostitute, so it's not sort of completely not there, but this idea of balance really is key. Yeah, right. And like kind of in all things, right? Like you know, unless you're called to celibacy, that's not healthy. But oversex is too much, right? In the same way that you said, this balance of humors, a balance of sexual behavior. And the church seems to call for that as well, right? There should be a balance. You can't be a sex-crazed maniac, but unless you're called, celibacy isn't necessarily a fabulous thing for a person as well. No, I, I think there is this, yeah, this acceptance that probably for most people, marriage will be the, be the way forward so that you can have sex in a sort of well, church-sanctioned way, I guess. Um, that, that you should even then they they've sort of got sort of got this idea that you shouldn't be too enthusiastic. They do talk about the idea that if you love your wife too much, that's as bad as committing adultery. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it, it is sort of definitely seen as uh, a perfectly acceptable lifestyle for most people. Yeah, and being luxurious is too much, but that's kind of the it. So there's something here really about just being appropriate, right? Um, and you know, so. Uh, when is sex within marriage appropriate? Are there particular times it's acceptable? There are all sorts of rules. Um, it, it's, you're not supposed to have sex during Lent, for example, um, certain times of the week. Um, there are rules about sex during menstruation is seen as being a bad idea, largely for medical reasons, actually, because they're worried that any children conceived in that period will be deformed. Um, and it's to do with blood and sort of the, the feet, what the fetus is made of and stuff. So rather than sort of terrible fears about pollution, it, it is more practical than that. Um, you're not supposed to have sex in certain places. I mean, sex in church, for example, they're quite, they get quite hung up on that. I don't know whether lots of people were having sex in church, but there's, there's a, a surprising amount of discussion of that. Um, although in the, in the early Middle Ages, these rules tended to be sort of focused on really strictly by the church actually by about the 12th century they've become so into this idea of marriage as a sacrament of the marital debt that actually they get to the point where they're going well if having sex in church is the only way you can have children it might be acceptable it's better to have sex with your spouse on good friday than to cause him to go off and sleep with somebody he's not married to that sort of thing so it does that does start to break down a bit Mm -hmm. um yeah Right, because um, you know when marriage becomes a sacrament in twelve fifteen, and so then then there is a place, a legitimate God given, like a recognized place for sex. Yeah, um, but so then if there's this this wonderful place for sex within marriage, within reasonable bound bounds appropriately, when might celibacy be appropriate? So I mean, I guess above all, celibacy is yeah for the clergy. Um, and certainly from the, I mean, for sort of the higher clergy and the monks, celibacy have been the idea for centuries, but it's for the sort of the parish priests, your ordinary cleric, 
it's only from the um, late 11th century that it becomes the required. And so it's, it's quite a slow process make, making it stick, but it does gradually become the norm. Um, and so, yeah, that, that's supposed that's the big group who are supposed to be celibate. And I mean, they do. Some people seem to find it relatively easy. Some people really struggle with it. Um, you know, there are all sorts of stories about saints who have to have sort of divine interventions to help them be celibate. Um, if you're not lucky enough to have that happen, then there are all sorts of stories about holy men who um, immerse themselves in freezing cold rivers, chug themselves in brambles, lots of fasting, all sorts of horrible things. There's, there's even a few cases I've come across of um, priests who castrate themselves because they can't uh, they can't manage celibacy. Um, and then they have to be dispensed by the Pope to be allowed to be carried on being priests. And one or two who actually managed to, to kill themselves, castrating themselves. Um, so that's really horrible. Um, yes, it is. Yeah, I th- yeah. You, you, there are some serious questions to be asked, probably about um, how much good will this celibacy did anybody. So, yeah. yeah, yeah. And I think that the church is still kind of, you know, every now and then we have some questions about that. Still, I think we see that still wrestling with that one. Yeah. <laughs> how good is this celibacy for anyone? But I mean, there's also a time because proper sexuality is so clearly linked with reproduction, right? Like Mm -hmm. sex is bad, right? It's a pleasure of the flesh. It's not, you know, original sin is the only reason like we have it, et cetera, et cetera. But it's also required for reproduction. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Appropriate sex happens within a marriage. But then there's a point beyond reproductive years when it's when a celibate marriage is acceptable. Yeah. Yeah, there, yeah. Despite this idea of the marital debt, there are couples who do sort of mutually agree. It has to be mutually agreed, is the idea. Um, you you can take a formal vow before an archbishop or a bishop to, to take that. Most people don't seem to do that. Most people just seem to agree it informally between yourself, probably because once you've made that vow, you can't go back on it. Um, but yeah, there are some couples. Probably the most famous are the are the Kemp's, Marjorie Kemp and her husband, who was she was a Norfolk um, mystic type. And, um, yeah, they had, I think it was 14 children, and she sort of became increasingly religious, um, started having visions, long conversations with Jesus, um, and pressured him for years, tried to persuade him for years to to have a celibate marriage, and eventually he does agree. Um, And they sort of live harmoniously after that. But, I mean, and they... They're probably the most famous example. There are much nastier examples, actually. There, there, There are cases where women sort of really want to have celibate marriages but their husbands won't go along with it and the confessors say no they've got to have sex there's one who then every time she has sex she drips hot wax on her skin before she has sex and vomits afterwards and you know this sort of the yeah that the, the, again the, the, the sort of the mental torment going on here is that what that couple really needed was to separate <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah there might not have i mean i mean there's a space for that we, we now but um it might it's not necessarily a good sign right is it it, it doesn't feel like it no <laughs> <laughs> um you know and there's a lot about illness in general right there's a lot of like there's a, a lot of ways that sex can be a disorder and can be viewed as such right you can make you too you're too wet or too dry or whatever and I'd like to talk about lovesickness, which you bring up in the book. And I think that's such a cool point because it really brings up the slippage between medievals and moderns, right? And in some ways we're talking about sex and people might be tempted to think they understand what sex is. Um, you know, but it's so it, there's so much cultural coding there that, of course, it's a very different thing, even if the physical act is similar, right? 
So like love sickness is something we don't consider. I mean, it's an emotion. It's not a sickness and not one we even take all that seriously. It doesn't even rate like grief or stress or fear, but it's a very different story in the middle ages. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it can, yeah, it definitely is seen as something that can be a really serious physical ailment. I think probably shows the extent to which they did see the sort of the mind and body interacting in terms of health, actually. But yeah, it's something that can cause all sorts of horrible symptoms that in theory, again, you can die of. Mainly seems to afflict rich young men. Um, I suppose you might say, yeah, I mean, they had the luxury to be lovesick. Um, and often the remedies are things like going on holiday. Um, and sort of, yeah, distracting yourselves with nice food and good company and that sort of thing. But yeah, it's, it is seen as a genuine, genuine physical condition in a way that seems odd to us. Yeah, that seems very odd. But, you know, I mean, the the Victorians talk about wanderlust as an actual sexual perversion. I mean, these people, have, we've had very different ideas in the past about these sorts of things. But, I mean, that also brings up the point young men have love sickness. Young men can feel uh, broken because of sex. But sex is a decidedly gendered issue. What what I mean, like, what can happen... Women are fundamentally different, right? Physically in body and morally in mind. So let's talk about some of those differences. Like what's, first of all, what are the, the differences in the sexed bodies between men and women? Yeah, so I mean, this is, this is such a more controversial than you might think because there's sort of there's this big idea about was the female, was the medieval woman just seen as like an inverted male? Um, and so whereas the sort of in the male, because the male body is hot, that it gets hot enough to sort of push the um, genitals out of the body and so men have external reproductive organs whereas women have, have stayed inside their body um and some people have followed that through so yeah woman is literally an inverted man there are medieval texts that suggest no they didn't see it quite like that you know that it wasn't was they did roughly equate the different parts but that it wasn't sort of seen as a straightforward inversion um I mean, in, in terms of your sort of, yeah, your conditions and things that you can get, because both men and women are thought to produce seed when they have sex, to reproduce, probably the female equivalent of love sickness is green sickness or suffocation of the womb. And that's when, so you're, as, a, as a woman, you're not having sex and the sort of the seed builds up in your womb and eventually it starts to suffocate you and, again, cause all sorts of um, nasty symptoms. And the remedy for that is, is sex. You know, ideally, a woman suffering from that should get married. Um, if she can't, you can try all sorts of fumigations and things that might try and release the seed. But um, yeah, again, so it is seen as a problem for women, at least as much as men. Right, and it's it's this again imbalance, normal. It's normal, natural, balanced thing that where the mind and the body are really well kind of integrated. But so then, um, what, then what's the position, I mean, of, of prostitution, which is something that is rampant, of course, always, everywhere, and particularly, you know, clear in medieval Europe. How does prostitution work? What's the, what's the church position on that? How does this work culturally? Yeah, I mean, again, I suppose it, it's quite complicated in the sense that the church obviously doesn't approve, um, very much has got the idea that no, there shouldn't be prostitutes and that where there are, you should try and reform them. And they set up special sort of almost convent-like institutions for reformed prostitutes. And so, yeah, that, that's the religious sort of side of it. Although there are quite a lot of clergy who are caught using prostitutes inevitably with this um, no marriage policy. 
Um, but then, yeah, on the other side, you've got these medical ideas that suggest, well, maybe particularly young and unmarried men will need to have sex for their good of their health. Um, and so you you switch over the course of the Middle Ages from in the 12th, 13th centuries, cities are mainly trying to ban prostitution to evict sex workers from cities um, and to sort of just shut the trade down. Then gradually things start to shift and a lot of cities actually set, start setting up legalised brothels, official red light districts, and sort of accepting that, OK, prostitution is going to happen and the best thing to do is to regulate it. Um, you know, to try and stop it causing a big social problem, to try and contain it to certain parts of the city, um, to, to have sort of regulations that protect the women working there. Um, yeah, and so it's something, I mean, I guess in a lot of ways they're wrestling with the same sorts of things as we still are now. Is it, is it better to uh, to manage or to ban? So one thing I'm getting as I'm thinking about this is the idea that sex is very powerful right? Maybe scary, maybe dangerous. Is that a fair uh, assumption or is that a fair thing to say? Yeah, no, I, I think probably that it is. It is seen as this sort of powerful, sort of, you know, it's a, it's a bodily force, isn't it? It's, and I think probably one of the things that does frighten particularly a lot of clergy is, is the sort of the extent to which the body can't be controlled. Um, because women are seen as the more lustful sex, there is this sort of fear of female sexuality and, and the sort of the dangers that can cause. And yeah, I think it is seen as a sort of a potential social problem and something that for the, for the good of the whole community, you need to try and control, both because it's sort of, you know, rampant and what they think of as deviant sexuality is going to cause social problems. You know, there are preachers who sort of find out, you know, well, if everybody sleeps with everybody, that's going to cause chaos and fights and, and that's a bad thing. Um, but also because of this idea that, you know, sort of, yeah, sexual sin displeases God and that one bad apple can contaminate the whole barrel. And if things get too out of hand, maybe God will decide to punish you. Um, and, you know, then you start to get concerns about sort of plagues and things. And, and so, yeah, it is seen as something that the church and, and the and the government need need to control, which I think is is why you get all these sort of court cases and things trying to make people behave themselves. Yeah. And this idea that it can be this very disruptive force. I mean, you talk about interfaith sex, which is a bit of a problem. Mm. Yeah. Um, I mean, how common is that? I think, I mean, I think probably it would be, it's, it's a pretty a more regional problem in this, you know, I mean, there are obviously people of different faiths and races across Europe, but the biggest concentrations are in the, in the South, in, in Iberia, and to a lesser extent in Italy. And I think particularly, I mean, particularly in Spain and Portugal, which have quite large Jewish and Muslim populations in the Middle Ages, it is relatively common. Um, and it does cause quite a lot of concern. Um, and again, I mean, a lot of it seems to be quite pragmatic concerns about, well, if a Christian and a Jew marry, what basis is that child going to be brought up in? And obviously, both faiths think it should be their own. Um, and there's quite a lot of concern about sort of uh, prostitution. And again, that sort of people of one faith should go to prostitutes of that faith um, because sex sort of connects, a co creates a connection between people that then, um, you know, you're, you're, it sort of impacts beyond, beyond that immediate um, incident. You know, um, yeah. Well, it seems a lot of this, though, a lot of like church talk, a lot of legislation about it isn't about, well, it's about sex, right? The church is particularly interested in sex and the act and what it means. But also there seems to be a concern 
with the unintended consequences of sex. Like, what if these, what if these people want to live together? Where are they going to live? What if they have a child? What do we do with this child? Right? Yeah. I mean, there's there's some some really practical concerns here about interface sex or even just unregulated sex. Yeah, no, I, I think a lot of it is quite pragmatic and, and quite sort of, yeah, that they are worrying about sort of things that now seem odd to us. But that, I mean, you know, let, let's face it, yeah, relationships between people of different cultures today can still cause problems in, in practical terms, in, in terms of, yeah, what what who who's whose religion are you going to follow and are the family going to accept you and, and all that sort of thing and so i think yeah a lot a lot of the concerns it's a bit like the prostitution a lot of these issues they carry on being problematic in the same ways i guess yeah for sure yeah definitely you've got this um yeah and and so the, the religious concerns and the political and kind of reasonable like you know real life real world concerns really tend to nestle very well, it seems, so to to manage kind of what could be a problematic thing. That seems fair. Um, so one of the things we see this like official religious prescription against unfettered sexuality, a lot of like, uh, you know, secular legislation that regulates sexuality, a whole lot of like very purposeful loathing of sex. You talk about St. Vincent Ferrer, who's just an, un- an unbelievably unpleasant <laughs> man in general, but yeah. like really, wow, he hates sex. Um, but you know, it's everywhere. It's absolutely everywhere. We know this, we know this because, you know, we as a species have continued to exist, but we also know it because so much great medieval literature is sex mad, right? Or at least the stuff that's lasted long enough for us to have it. It appears to be everywhere. Yeah, I mean, if you've ever read the Canterbury Tales or the Cameron or lots of other stuff, yeah, I mean, a lot of it is really quite filthy, isn't it? And that, that yeah, it does in a lot of ways seem to be at odds with the sort of a lot of the church teachings. And uh, I mean, I suppose what it does show is, again, some sort of ongoing things about sex as a source of humour, Sex is something that we find interesting, even if we feel we shouldn't. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think probably in a way, what I find even more bizarre than the the literature is some of the arts. I mean, you know, some some of the some of the sculptures in medieval churches, which to us seem obscene and frankly inappropriate, and nobody knows, you know, quite what they're doing. There's these sheilas, for example, these sort of sculptures of um, women showing off their genitals. Um, and sort of sculptures of men with massive penises and things and so people have come up with all sorts of theories about are they sort of pedagogical that you know these these stories are they cautions about childbirth and sort of the consequences of sexual sin in the case of these women um nobody really knows i mean i think probably what what we can say they're not given that they're on churches which let's face it are controlled by the clergy including some really important ones they're not sort of ancient fertility cults or something no, in the way that some people have tried to make them but but why you would do you know what why would you stick a, a massive naked figure in a church it, it doesn't make sense to us and I think that's probably one of the harder elements to get to grips with yeah it doesn't make sense to us but it clearly makes so much sense to them right and again yeah. this, there's this power and is it a warning is it some sort of like cautionary tale am I meant to you know, I, I understand when I see a last judgment, naked figures are being pulled into hell in the midst of a sex act. I get that. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Though, <laughs> though you don't need to be a complete uh, an art historical genius to sort that one. 
But um, it is, a, it's, it's really, I mean, there's some questions that no one seems to have any good ideas about. There's much scholarship still, but it, it just speaks to the prevalence of it. You know, and certainly, you know, the, it, it seems consistent as a avid reader of the Decameron. <laughs> <laughs> this is how I know I'm going to get my undergrads, right? When I'm trying to teach them in the Middle Ages and they're like, whatever, you're not going to talk about knights. I'm not interested in it. Let me have, how about sex in a barrel? How about that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm like, okay, that's pretty good. Uh, and and the idea that the medievals are obsessed with sex and the people are obsessed with sex then as now, make, you know, it, it, it does, it, it helps students connect, I feel. Yeah. You know, and me as well. Um, so, so I know you've read a lot of literature. You see a lot of, there's a lot of image. You've got, this book is really well illustrated. You've got some excellent images in here. Um, and then you've got law codes. What else did you use? Talk to me about your sources. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I mean, one of the joys of writing it was that really, I suppose that it was so, so wide ranging. Cause I mean, obviously there's a lot of prescriptive stuff, you know, I've read, I've read a lot of, you know, treatises on confession and me- medical tracts and things. Um, a lot of saints' lives and things, um, an, an awful lot of court records. You know, there's a lot of what we know about sort of ordinary people, I suppose, come, comes from when they turn up in the church courts um, doing something that's been deemed inappropriate. Um, and then we get we get all sorts of incidental details about that. I'm trying to think, what else I've read? Like, yeah, lot, lots of literature, lots of, lots of material culture. Yeah, lots um, of material culture. There's a lot of uh, sex to be found in household items as well, if you're interested in that, you know? Yeah. Uh, and like household art and vases and whatnot, but at least down on the med, lots of material culture. So, I mean, it's safe to say kind of it's everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this, this must have been really fun to research. It was. It was great fun. I think, you know, I mean, I think when I started doing it and I started saying to people what I was doing, I think probably. A lot of people were quite sceptical that you could even find out about sex in the Middle Ages. Well, I've got 300 pages to prove them wrong. Yeah. Um, but I suppose, yeah, people have got quite simplistic views of it often. You know, that either they've watched lots of Games of Thrones and they think it's all going to be like that, very sort of rapey and violent, and, or they've watched too much um, sort of carry-on type stuff but, and are expecting just all sort of jolly japes. Um, or some people have read too much Mills and Boone and think it's all going to be sort of swooning ladies and forceful nights and stuff. But I suppose... What I hope I've done is sort of, I suppose, to complicate the picture. And there are elements of all of that in there, but also a lot more just sort of real life and normal life. Um, and yeah, things that are still very familiar to us, as well as some things that are really not familiar to us. Yeah, really baffling. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is is you've you've presented um, in a really readable way a fairly complex picture. And, you know, you you brought up Game of Thrones and you start there with this idea of like medieval, like in medieval sexuality and what that is. And it's either it's somehow at the same time utterly non-existent or extraordinarily violent. Right. And or together somehow. And um, and I think that's an, it's interesting that that is the conception. If you're going to ask someone about the Middle Ages, you first, yeah, you won't know. There's no way to know about it. And or no one's having it because the church hates sex or everyone's having it in sort. <laughs> it's a very interesting picture. And you bring it up and then you proceed in the book to demonstrate that it's much it's a much more complex story. Um, 
which I suppose is why the book works well as a popular history. It works well as something that others are going to want to read. That's so good news. Um, <laughs> well done. All right. So what's next? I know you're, you're doing your, um, your for the Academy work. Are you thinking about another kind of public or yeah, public history, kind of a, a popular history or a work as a public intellectual? I'm just starting out at the moment on a, on a book um, that will sort of look more at some of the health elements. It's sort of the working title is A Medieval Guide to Healthy Living. Um, and so there will be a little bit of sex in there again, obviously. Um, but also looking at things like sort of diet and exercise and the idea that, you know, your emotions affect your health, um, what makes a good healthy living environment, and looking at how that, those sorts of ideas apply to different sorts of people. So I should be looking at babies and men and women and old people. Um, and, yeah, sort of ideas and experiences about illness. It's still quite early on at the moment, so it's, it's, it's not uh, – I haven't got a really firm idea of where it's going, but that's the sort of territory I'm looking at. Are there these um, – you know, in the Renaissance, which is my period a little bit later, um, and, and in Southern Europe we have these guides to good living. There are loads mm. of them like ways to live are you gonna are you gonna see these in medieval england there i mean there they sort of they start to come in towards the end of the middle ages there's the um the big salerno regimen um definitely starts to circulate and i I think definitely by the sort of the 14th 15th century more important people are starting to have these sorts of texts certainly i've come across some bishops for my other project who by the yeah the 14th 15th century having personalized regimens written for them um, looking at things, including how, as a cleric, do you man- manage celibacy so that you can still be healthy? You know, what should you be eating? All that sort of thing. So, yeah, it, it is starting to come in. And definitely th- those ideas that those key principles underpin your health and that if you manage to keep it, keep an eye on them and, and manage the non-naturals properly, um, that you should be able to live a longer, healthier life. <clears throat> it's definitely there. Quite early on. Reading those and then medical treatises. There'll be loads of medical treatises. Lots and lots of those. Yeah. Yeah, and the conduct manuals that are going to happen a little later. Very interesting. So that's that's exciting. Yeah. Well, Catherine, I've taken up quite enough of your time today. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, and I will. I'm going to get in touch when you read, so I can learn about how to le- lead a good and clean life in the Middle Ages. <laughs> Thank you.